in this episode, we're going beyond the Brothers Grimm. We're going to do some deep dives right into the origins of the most popular myths, fairy tales, and literature within Romancelandia. Put on your scuba gear and summon the submarine. It's time to dive, dive, dive. It sounded more like a like a seagull than what I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be like in Atlantis where they're like, dive, dive, and it just didn't, it didn't work. Okay. You okay. did your best. Sorry. Hey there, romance nerds! Welcome back to another episode of Raging Romantics. I'm Jen. I'm Jackie. And this podcast is brought to you by Northern Onondaga Public Library. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things related to Romance Landia. With that being said, please be aware that sometimes our material may be a little too sensitive for younger listeners. If you need to wait until they go to bed, we'll still be here for you. So without further ado, are you ready, Jen? Oh, I'm ready, Jackie. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes. What does a wicked witch like to read in the newspaper? What? Her horror scope. <laughs> I get can, it? Her yes. horror? Horror. The horror. <laughs> I can never say horror correct. And it always sounds like I'm saying the other thing. Mm-hmm. And Is there some horror in this house? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. So a lot of horror. I mean, there's a lot of horror in this house. We're in the library There are right because I order the fiction books. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of horror. I gotta say it with a Long Island accent. All right. Well, are we ready to get going into... Please do. Okay. I'm ready. All right. This is going to be a long episode, listeners. Be, be forewarned. Um, where the last one was short, this one is long. Before we begin, I do want to issue just a general trigger warning that towards the end, we're going to be looking pretty heavily into the account of Hades and Persephone, which does feature a uh, rape and abduction narrative in the traditional sense. I will issue a warning as well before we get into that discussion so that you know when to skip over. Specific time frames are also noted in the show notes so that you do not miss out on our larger discussion into Greek mythos. Also, please note that what we're talking about today is something whole PhD theses and lifelong works of scholars have been based off of. I've done a lot of research in the past couple of weeks, and I've gone into primary and secondary sources. I've looked at the literature. I've consulted various opinions and hypotheses. I've watched a lot of YouTube. And in general, I've done my due diligence. But I'm not a literature specialist. I'm not a folklorist, and I only have a minimal training in classics. As in, I can read Latin and not a lot of Greek. (laughs) What I do have, though, is respect for these fields. All of my sources are available in the show notes, and if you do happen to be a professional in any of these fields and have a correction for us or wish to open up a dialogue, don't hesitate to reach out. Ragingromantics at nopal.org. We love to learn in this episode. Well, I'm going to warn you right now, I definitely went down the rabbit hole for it, and we're going to be learning a lot today, guys. So, what are we doing today, you may ask? Well, last time we looked at some of the different types of retellings that exist in Romancelandia. Just to remind you, we have the original tales, then we have straightforward retellings, then we have the many shades of homage, and last but not least, we have ripoffs, whether they be just uncredited retellings or all the way up to illegal. And Jen, we're actually going to talk about an illegal one today. Ooh, your own version of a scandal mm-hmm, episode. Mm-hmm, hmm We're going to be looking at four basic stories this time, in my opinion, that are four of the most common bases for retellings in romance books. We've got Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Pride and Prejudice, and Hades and Persephone. With each of these stories, we're going to attempt to walk you back through the history to the original folktale, literature, or myth. From there, we're going to look at why these stories could be so popular in romance retellings and whether or not we should be idolizing and romanticizing these tales. 
because, spoiler alert, there are some glaring red flags. Eh. We'll see. I don't know. Yes. we'll it's fine. We're, we're going to talk it out. We've read worse. Yes. Especially if we look at it through a modern lens, we'll, yeah. we'll talk it out. Finally, I hope you brought some sort of note taker because we're going to be giving you a lot of recommendations. Like, a lot of recommendations. All right. Jen, any thoughts so far? Nope. Okay, cool. We're back to no thoughts, just vibes. Cool. Jen's just going to be a sponge today and yeah, absorb. Soaking and soaking everything up. Probably yell at me I'm a couple ready. times. Okay. So before we can get into this analysis, I do need to give you some literary background and definitions. I'm sorry. Boring stuff out of the way, but we need to all be on the same page. Get it? Get it. That's a bad one. I know. Okay. Mm. Sorry. To begin. I was so bad. I'm not even going to acknowledge <laughs> it. Like, page is too easy for a librarian. I'm sorry. Mm-mm. I'm getting there. I'm trying. No, no credit. Keep going. Okay. Tell me about this page. So to begin, we need to differentiate between the three different types of stories we're going to be talking about today. First up, we have folk tales. A folk tale is a fictional story based passed down by generations, usually starting with an oral tradition, and with the purpose of relating a moral or life lesson to the listener. Now, when it comes to talking about folk tales, something I found extremely useful and immediately important in my quest to seek out information on the origins of tales is the Arn Thompson Utha classification system of tale types and motifs. Specifically, the volume that I used was The Types of International Folk Tales, a Classification and Bibliography, Part 1 Animal Tales, Tales of Magic, Religious Tales, and Realistic Tales by Hans Jörg Utha. Say that 10 times fast. This classification system uh, was a blessing to a mind like mine that seeks to break things down into its minutiae. Plus, as a librarian and former archaeologist, I really love when things are assigned a typology with numbers. It just it makes my little heart happy. I'm sorry. Okay. Abbreviated to the ATU, the Arne Thompson Uther classification system of tail types and motifs groups together tail types that represent an independent type which has been documented amongst at least three different ethnic groups or over a long period of time. A tale type is a self-sufficient narrative. For instance, a persecuted heroine story or the devil and the smith narrative are different types of tale types. Again, it's one of those things where the word defines the word. I'm really sorry, guys. And it is these tale types that the ATU uses its typology on to assign numbers from 1 to 1,000 to categorize different types of tales across ethnographic and cultural boundaries. So you'll hear me refer to the folk tales we talk about today with a specific number delineated. I've linked a web version of the ATU in the show notes as well if you want to follow along. Don't follow along if you're driving and listening and Jen's eyes are already glazing over. I just can't believe somebody put math in fairy tales. <laughs> it's like the Dewey Decimal System. But for folk tales. Dewey Decimal sucks too, though. It does. Okay, Library of Congress. Okay, I'll take that one. Though Jefferson's on thin ice. I know, I know, I know. But it's a number assigned to a tale type. Mm-hmm. It's It was really, like, nerdy cool for okay. to look I mean, through. it is cool. Like, it's neat that somebody sat down and did this. I'm just like, why are you ruining this with numbers? <laughs> because it's... Ta- so it takes all these different oh. tales from, like, different cultural, ethnic, ethno... Cult- you guys know what I'm saying. From so different are, backgrounds. Are they a fairy scientist? The way we're, like... Librarian scientists. Anyways. <laughs> That's a good question. Fair enough. Whatever. Within- I'm just saying, if you're going to have this kind of crazy setup, have a good top job title. Yeah. Well, they're ethnographers. Oh, <sighs> too long. Too many syllables. All right. Within individual tail types, you have motifs. A motif is the smallest descriptive unit within a narrative. These motifs all combined together create the building blocks that then lead us up to the narrative, which is the tail type. 
For example, within the persecuted heroine tale type, you can have a fairy godmother motif or pregnancy motif or an evil stepsister motif. You get where I'm going with this, right? The combination of these motifs all together then dictate the tale type the folktale is assigned to. Are we good so far? Cool. Okay, cool. Then we have myths. And myths, even though they appear similar to folktales, are something fundamentally different. And so aren't described by the same methods and they aren't assigned numbers in the ATU. A myth is a legendary story usually explaining some historical or religious phenomenon, while a folktale, like I said, is a fictional story passed down by generations with the purpose of telling like a lesson, right? They can serve similar purposes, myths and folktales, to create morals or to dictate warnings. However, myths come from a fundamentally different place within a culture. The third type we're going to be talking about today is literature. And literature, while it can be used to denote a larger subsection of nonfiction-based writings, for instance, you'll hear academics sometimes say, well, within the literature, we have this discussion. But for this episode, we're going to be using the definition that defines literature as fictional writings that serve no larger purpose than to just tell a story. The curtains are just blue. Okay, people, they're just, they're, they're blue. Finally, within literature, we have something called a trope, and you've probably heard us say this a bunch of times, and we've never actually like defined it, and I figured it was probably time we do so. Trope and motif may seem similar, but tropes aren't defined by the ATU and generally aren't used when describing a tale type in a folktale, but they are described within literature. Think of a trope as a narrative within the larger literary narrative. It is a path built of motifs that leads to an understood outcome. Once the trope is identified by the reader, we know how that particular piece of narrative will end up. For instance, one of our favorites, the one-bed trope. We know that the second the innkeeper tells the characters that there's only one bed, someone's going to offer to sleep on the floor, but they will inevitably end up canoodling on the one bed. Mm-hmm. So... You'll be glad. It's time to leave the dictionary behind. Let's get into the fun stuff. Let's get into the stories. First up, we're going to talk about the girl with the pumpkin. Cinderella. Cinderella, Cinderella. Feet are smelly. Okay. (laughs) And Cinderella is really interesting because what started as a global folktale ended up becoming a modern turn of phrase. So Jen, when I say Cinderella, what is the version that pops into your head? The brandy version. Oh, really? Yeah, that was my favorite one growing up. I I, love that version. I I should not admit this probably on a work podcast, but I downloaded the music illegally. (laughs) I don't think they ever released a CD. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how can you not have Whitney Houston? singing uh imagine like like just all the whole soundtrack on a cd <gasps> it's insane impossible impossible that's impossible to me oh no stuck in my head no but i'm probably the one you're going for is disney it's okay well so the brandy version is based off of the disney version i thought it was based off the hammer the rogers and hammerstein yes which is disney yeah i know you have a little mouse got everywhere i know i had like a whole thing about like the disney and rogers and hammerstein i was like i don't have time to talk about this like the black plague Especially with Hades and Persephone, they did Hades so wrong. What in the in, Hercules? Yeah, I love Hercules. I know, but, but like it's fun. It's like a fun retelling, though. It doesn't have to be accurate. I mean, none, no, no part of Hercules should be re- accurate for a child's yeah. movie. 
We'll get into that in like about 45 minutes, so bear with us for that discussion. Back to Cinderella. Yeah, Disney. Okay, so I think the Disney is one of the most pervasive versions mm -hmm. of Cinderella out there. Um, At least for our generation, Jen and mine, who grew up with Disney VHSs and the start of the Disney Princess franchise in 2000. It's crazy that it started in 2000. I know. It feels like it should be later than that. It should be like the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Whether you, dear listener, first envision the Brandy Whitney Houston version, which is one of the ultimate versions, I will say. Or if you envision the OG Disney blonde bun head with Gus Gus and a vaguely Mary Poppins-esque fairy godmother. Or maybe it's Lily James and Rob Stark. That Sorry. one actually was pretty cute. I, yeah. I liked that one. I was surprised. I loved Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. I, she's the best evil stepmother. Yeah. I love her so much. Or maybe it's Anna Kendrick running away from a prince who was raised to be charming, not sincere. Mm -hmm. I started watching that movie last night. My dad's like, what's this? This is weird. (laughs) It's like, I love Into the Woods. (laughs) Either way, Cinderella is one of those figures who the majority of the world will instantly recognize. Her story, however, isn't as straightforward as Disney has made it seem. So let's take a journey to the past, which is not a Disney reference, as I've just come to learn, (laughs) and explore the wild ride of Cendrillon or... Bad German accent, Aschenputtel. <laughs> In the ATU, Cinderella stories are ascribed to the 510 tail type, or the persecuted heroine tale. In nearly every version, the heroine of the story is the victim of outward forces, whether it be an evil stepmother, vicious stepsisters, or even an incestuous father. Mm-hmm. Fun. From there, a variety of cultures. Did you know that Europe has over 345 versions of yeah. Cinderella? There's Wild. like a version of Cinderella in just about every yes. culture. It's so fun. Even cultures that never met each other. So you can't even be like, oh, they, they met and talked about it. It's just like nope. it's something that happened organically yes. for everybody. Persecuted heroine. Mm-hmm. It's a great start to a story. I mean, not really, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but a variety of cultures have ascribed various motifs and tropes that nonetheless always end in an H-E-A in some way, shape, or form. Similarities persist throughout multiple versions, and interestingly enough, the oldest motif we can trace belongs to the slipper or the shoe being used to identify the heroine. Fun fact, hey. So perhaps the oldest version we can identify of Cinderella, or at least oldest extant written version, comes from the story of Rhodopsis, probably saying that very wrong, which dates sometime between the 7th century BCE and and 23 CE. Most scholars will attest that the story most likely comes from the first century BCE, as that is when it was officially recorded by the scribe Strabo. Um, I have linked the entire myth in the show notes. If you want to click it, give it a read through. Long story short of it is, as a young Greek woman named Rhodopsis is kidnapped by pirates, sold into slavery in Egypt. Um, her master, who is a nice guy, all the servants are the ones mean who are mean to her. Um, Her master gives her a very fancy pair of gilded slippers because she's a pretty dancer. And he's like, you should have some pretty slippers. Um, The pharaoh then is like, hey, guys, I'm going to have court in Memphis, not Tennessee, Memphis, Egypt. Um, And everybody should come. Rhodopsis gets left behind. Her slippers get wet. She puts them on the banks of the river to dry. A falcon or an eagle swoops down, steals the slippers, drops them in the lap of the pharaoh. Pharaoh takes his sign from Horus, and he goes out looking for whoever can fit the slippers. Of course, because Rhodopsis is the most beautiful woman in out the land, she has the tiniest feet. That is just, I have giant feet, and I always hated that part of Cinderella. <laughs> because she fits the slippers, she and Pharaoh get married happily ever after the end. There is also a Chinese version that is remarkably similar to that story and the story we know today, and that is the tale of Ye Shan. Again, I probably said that wrong. I'm sorry. Um, and it can be dated to about CE 860. 
This story also features the motifs of tiny golden slippers that fascinate the king, but it introduces the motif of the evil stepmother who wishes ill on her stepdaughter. The first European version that is officially recorded doesn't come around until 1634 in the Pentamarone by Italian Giambattista Basile. This collection of folktales also contains recognizable versions of Rapunzel, Puss in Boots, and Sleeping Beauty. But Basile's tale about Sene... Oh, I can never say this. Senerentola, aka Cinderella, included a wicked stepmother, evil sisters, losing her shoes, magic, and a nobleman who sought the owner of the shoe. And then we get the French tale of Cendrillon, the tale that finally includes the pumpkin, and it is one of the accredited versions of inspiration for Disney. Charles Perrault wrote Histoire ou Conte de ton passé in 1697, where he concluded the tale Cendrillon ou la petite pantoufle de verre, also known as Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper. This was the version, like I said, that Disney would use to create their version over 250 years later in 1950. But we can't forget about Brothers Grimm. And don't worry, I was getting there. The Brothers Grimm, I think, are perhaps the version that most people will attribute to the transmission of Cinderella from, but they would be wrong. Um, because Disney used the French version, not the German version. The German version, Aschenputtel, is very bloody. <laughs> the heroine doesn't even have a fairy godmother. Instead, she plants a branch her father picked for her before he died on the grave of a mother, cries over it every day, grows into a beautiful tree, which is home to a beautiful white bird. When her stepmother's stepmother and stepsisters grow increasingly cruel to her, she gets described tasks like separating lentils from the ash. The animals from the tree come to help her, and eventually they give her a beautiful dress and embroidered slippers with which to go to the festival the king is holding. We wish to go to the festival! It's from Into the Woods. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> um, the festival is held at the, for over a course of three days. At the end of three days, Cinderella runs away from the prince, leaving behind her slipper. Prince tracks her down. Stepsisters tried it on. Doesn't fit. They chop off their toes and their heels. Prince only notices that they aren't the ones when they start, like, the blood starts overfilling their shoes. It's great. I love it. Um, Cinderella, they get married. Prince and Cinderella get married. The wicked stepsisters and stepmother are punished, and birds peck out their eyes. The end. The Disney version really misses something from that. They really do. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the live action Disney version does feature like the birds pecking out eyes, mm. which is interesting. And Into the Woods, wasn't that produced by Disney? It's on Disney Plus. Uh, that Into the Woods, I don't know who did that one. Okay. But I mean, it was based off the play and the musical. Yeah. So I don't know if. Dis- and the musical I'm sure was based Disney off Grimm. bought it. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> it's, Disney. it's Disney. From there, Disney picks up the story, they gentrify it, they whitewash it, like they do. And we're left with the version the majority of the Western world will recognize. Now, after telling all of this, you might be thinking, okay, Jackie, but then why is this story still so popular? Why do we keep seeing beautiful girls at balls in romance books with a prince chasing after them? My answer to that, the American dream. And a few other reasons. But really, Cinderella itself is a unique case because even though the story remains popular in its own version, whichever version you may recognize, Cinderella has also become a turn of phrase. Cinderella's story has become synonymous with the glow up we know and love in Western media. NPR did a really good recounting of this in their article, A Girl, A Shoe, A Prince, The Endlessly Evolving Cinderella. But to sum it up, Cinderella has become a sort of cultural tofu, quote unquote, that we use to create a character archetype of someone who can rise above their conditions and become the hero of the story and ride off into the sunset, whether it be with the love of their life or with the Heisman Trophy at the very end. We have potentially thousands of versions of Cinderella that we can use as fodder for our stories today, and yet somehow they've all boiled down to girl meets boy, girl is persecuted heroine in some form, girl gets fancy dress and shoes, boy falls in love, boy saves girl, evil family gets their just reward, 
just reward. Girl and boy live happily ever after. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's funny how all these different variants somehow, though, come to mean the exact same thing. If it's not the boy meets girl narrative, it's the character glow up archetype and the character overcoming the odds archetype, which is why I think a lot of men's favorite Disney princess is actually Cinderella. I don't think about men, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> Fair enough. I have Fair no enough. idea. I really don't think about it, though. <laughs> so, outside of these particular reasons, what are the actual story motifs and tropes we see replicated again and again in romance tellings of Cinderella? I think there are three main themes, if I may say so myself. First and foremost, the almost obvious, rags to riches. Like I said before, it's the ultimate American dream. That anyone, no matter their background, can have a happily ever after in a beautiful dress with the perfect man. It, not, not, not necessarily the dress and the perfect man. You guys get what I'm saying. There's a lot of anti-classism in this sentiment, which even though, especially right now in America, we're faced with a lot of classism and economic division, it still rings true, this sentiment of the American dream. I think it's everyone's dream, if not a lot of people's dreams, to overcome their financial situations, to win the lottery or to inherit some hitherto unknown estate and be able to forget all their financial woes. It's me. I'm people. If anybody wants to pay my student loans, thank you. And Cinderella stories just play right into this dream of financial escapism. I mean, I don't know if I would define it as an American dream since we've established that Cinderella has been everywhere. Fair point, fair point. So, but I get what you mean about people kind of wanting security. Yeah. I think it's kind of what I've always seen Cinderella as. And yeah, maybe it is like crazy wealth because that's just what the prince is. But I think it is also like Cinderella has been a servant or a slave for mm. so long in her life. At the very least, this is like a way for her to get out of her house. Yeah. And to get some kind of form of financial security, stability, uh, to not have to literally be named after the cinder she sleeps next to. Yeah. She would probably be thrilled. I think it's also kind of dangerous because mm-hmm. where areas, I think a lot of the quote unquote original American dream mm-hmm. was that you pull yourself up by yeah. your bootstraps. The Cinderella story is outward forces. She gets given the slippers. She gets yeah. given the dress. All she does is she cries over a grave. I hate to say all she does is just. I mean, if we're going to the very original. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like modern authors will dress it up so she has more agency. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, she's usually the one who who needs an outward force, like you said, to lift her up yeah and it's she doesn't even have bootstraps yeah yeah she doesn't even have slipper straps Mm -hmm. they are just slide on pumps but it feels like especially now thinking back to our billionaire episode there's a lot of wealth and romance now i think there's Mm. a lot of people that kind of want the richer partner the richer life just this kind of like well here we are in the world middle class is shrinking i mean we're not an economic podcast we're not going to get into it (laughs) but i can definitely see the desire for some escapism and some all right we're gonna go marry this prince and we're all good plus who among us doesn't dream of putting on a beautiful gown and just twirling around a magnificent ballroom i would love to Mm -hmm. I, I, i love a good dress anyways i guess i'm trying to decide though if that particular trope though is the cinderella i don't know because i feel like i've read cinderella retellings where it's not i don't know if there's necessarily a party all mm. the, i guess usually though that's like the climax of the story mm. like it is a good final kind of spot or it starts the, the story yeah a lot of the recommendations mm. i have later it actually starts with a ball okay. and then goes afterwards mm-hmm. which is kind of also how into the woods goes the musical and it made sense back in the day because that was the only way for unmarried married women to meet unmarried men were like these True. big parties and these big social events So I guess when I was thinking about it going into this, I was kind of like, is the ball part, is the dress part 
like a very solid trope of the Cinderella. Mm-hmm. I guess it kind of is, but I'm like modern tales. I don't know. I think it's iffy. Yeah, I think it true. depends because we have a lot. We have Tinder. Yeah, <laughs> like, they're gonna be a Tinder ball. <laughs> All right. Well, this brings us to the Prince Charming archetype. I think that this character, the perfect cut and paste hero with dashing good looks, a dimpled chin, a rakish grin, and the perfect flop of hair over over his forehead has become synonymous with romance, or at least with traditional romance. Nowadays, a lot of writers are challenging what a hero should look like, which I love. But in olden days romance novels, the heroes tended to look very similar, and they tended to act very similarly. They served simply to prove that the heroine was the object of someone's desire, and they served as escape hatches for the persecuted heroine to escape her situation. And honestly, that tracks perfectly with the goals of a romance book. We have said before that romance is traditionally written by women for women, and the perceived female gaze throughout romance novels means that the hero, or love interest, uh, traditionally served to prove that the reader was worthy of this affection and perceived desire, and was worthy of being saved. Now, I'm not saying that's what romance books still are. No way, shape, or form. We've definitely moved forward into modern romance. (laughs) Or at least we're trying to. But the everlasting popularity of the Cinderella archetype and the Prince Charming archetype within Romancelandia, whether or not they still visually fit the mold of these characters, persists. I know that was a big, like, big thing. Well, I mean, because I've been thinking about this since I read it this afternoon when I was skimming your script before you finished it. I don't... (sighs) I don't know. Like, I see your point. I definitely see a lot of examples. I guess I just feel really gross about it. Yeah, like, saying it out loud. Like, I don't like saying, like, the appeal is that he finds her worthy. Right. And, like, as gross as that is, I, I get where I've seen people in society act like that. I don't know. I'm still kind of struggling with that one. I'm a little, like, ugh. I, I mean, think... I get it. I, I'm still just, like, ugh. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of romance, too, where... Like, thinking back to that that kind of overview you said about boy saving girl, I feel mm-hmm. like there's now a lot of examples where the girl saves the boy mm-hmm. or if it's, like, a like a mutual thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard. It's, like, hard when you're, you're thinking about the original intentions and kind of, like, what the modern mm-hmm. writer is turning it into. Something that I was thinking very heavily about when I was writing those sentiments was... Right now in the fantasy, and especially fantasy romance sphere, it's the dark, brooding, yeah. anti-hero. That's been like that for a while. I know, but right yeah. now, like, almost every single, especially if you go on KU, mm-hmm. they're all, like, dark-haaired, blue yeah. or purple eyes, and, like, mm-hmm. dashingly handsome. Well, I mean, I mean most, they've always been handsome. Yeah, they've always been dashingly handsome. I mean, thinking about the wealthy thing you were talking about, I f- or, like, going back to the wealthy thing, rather, I feel like a lot of people have this idea that if you're rich, you're great. And you're, like, automatically a good person. You've done the right things to have that wealth. And I think that kind of plays into this Prince Charming thing of, Mm -hmm. like, well, if he's wealthy, if he's handsome, then, like, he's automatically a good person. And, like, yeah, he's worth us in that case. We'll have to remember that when we talk about Hades and Persephone. Okay. Okay. I'll keep that in the back of my mind. Put a pin in it. And finally, I also think that Cinderella stories give us a perfect meet-cute moment. It's that moment of spark, the moment of recognition, the zing and the lust and the insta-love and the romance that just Cinderella executes it so perfectly, I think. The idea of meeting someone in a ball, you're wearing a beautiful dress, you're having them fall in love with you, and they don't even really know what you look like half the time, which is problematic but (laughs) then having them want you so much that they come and rescue you from a bad situation there's something absolutely heady about that sentiment sentiment and it all stems from that first glorious meet cute when the character's eyes meet for the first time across the crowded room 
I mean, I definitely think a lot of Cinderella is about, you know, I've done the right things. I've worked hard. I haven't complained. I've stayed with my abusive family. I've done what society would consider the right things. And now I'm being, being rewarded mm-hmm. for it. And you're being recognized mm-hmm. above the evil forces. Yeah. When he puts on the shoe and he's like, aha, which is problematic if you can't recognize the woman you love except by putting a shoe on her foot. Mm -hmm. But it's that aha moment, I think. So, yeah. All right. It's time to break out the notes. Or, you know, you can just click the link to view all the show notes (laughs) (laughs) because we've got mad recommendations for you. Are you ready? Speed round. First up. A Kiss at Midnight by Eloisa James. This is historical. It's a clash of wits. It's anti-Prince Charming because we all love a grump. It's evil stepmother, mistaken identity, rags to riches, fairy godmother, all the things. You should also check out If the Shoe Fits by Julia Murphy, which is a contemporary reality dating show, fake dating, plus size heroine who's just trying to start a career and fade to black. Uh, Um, A Princess in Theory by Alyssa Cole. Women in STEM, mistaken identity. It's very steamy. (laughs) New York City, the hero has to crawl for his redemption. And honestly, we all love a good crawling hero scene. And it really gives me like Prince and Me vibes with Julia Stiles. Rogue Princess by B.R. Mayers is a gender swapped YA Cinderella in space. The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang is an LGBT plus graphic novel that actually made me cry. Aw, I know. Any Duchess Will Do by Tessa Dare. We stand Tessa Dare, and this one is great because the hero really eats his own words when he says, fine, I'll marry someone else, and picks a serving girl who he falls in love with because she's that amazing. So, haha. <laughs> if the Boot Fits by Rebecca Weatherspoon. We have cowboys of color and a heroine who don't take no poop from no one, including the cows. Yeehaw! <laughs> what about One Night With You by Sophie Jordan? which is a second chance Regency with a masquerade ball. And this next one, last one, is brand spanking new. I'm the first person to check it out from the mm-hmm. library today. Um, Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake. And it's more of an homage than a true retelling, but it's contemporary queer rom-com. And it's spicy. Oh, I love a spicy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that wraps up Cinderella. Okay. Whew. Take a breath. Let's move on because we still have three more stories to talk about. I told you this was going to be a long one. I'm so sorry. Next up, we get to talk about one of my personal favorites from when I was a child, Beauty and the Beast. Fun fact, I played Mrs. Potts in the high school musical. I had the teapot costume and everything. Yeah, there are pictures. You should put a picture on there. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I had a wig. It looked really weird. All right, Beauty and the Beast is interesting because unlike Cinderella, there's really no identifiable tale type that predates the 18th century. There are shades of tales as evidenced by the ATU tale type, which is 425A through C, or the search for the enchanted lost husband. Really quick, 425A um, is the maiden on a quest for her vanished bridegroom. Most notably, we have the woman who marries the snake, an Indian tale from the Panchatantra, I'm so sorry, which dates to about 1199 CE, but maybe as old as 200 BCE. We have 425B, which is the disenchanted husband and the witch's tasks, most notably Cupid and Psyche, which a lot of people do say is a precursor to Beauty and the Beast, but if you read the two tales, there's there's not much crossover there. Either way, Cupid and Psyche can date back as first officially recounted um between the 1st and 2nd century BCE and Lucius Apelius's writings. This does not count as a swear because it is a title. Okay. I mean, as long as it's a title. And it's a donkey. You, 
The Golden Ass. Oh, that one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and finally, we have 425C, which most scholars will agree is the most straightforward, like in Tale to Beauty and the Beast, where a father stays overnight in a mysterious palace. He takes a rose. Because of this, he must promise his youngest daughter to an animal or a beast who is enchanted and lives in that castle. Because of this, the daughter misses something very important back home with her father, usually, and leaves the castle overstays at home when she returns to the castle she finds her husband the beast almost dead and disenchants him with an embrace was not originally a kiss <laughs> an embrace. i'm gonna hug you back like, to life yeah <laughs> what's even more interesting jen i mean at least it's better than rapunzel i guess yeah, i'll take that lettuce the tale we recognize immediately as the inspiration for disney's beauty and the beast was plagiarism! <gasps> what a shock. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, Mickey Mouse was supposed to be plagiarized. What a shock. Disney stole, like, another thing. Oh, no, Disney didn't steal it. Oh. The original Beauty and the Beast got stolen. Oh, so mm-hmm. way back. How do you mm-hmm. steal that? Oh, you mm-hmm. know, I guess, like, before it was considered. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so was Beauty and the Beast folklore then? We're getting into it. Okay, or is okay. it, like, Little Mermaid where, like, Hans Christian Andersen did it? And Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so here's the tea. In 1756, French woman Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont um, released her Magasin des Enfants to teach young English girls moral, le- moral <laughs> lessons. What's interesting? Jean-Marie's story comes from a work published 17 years earlier. In 1740, Gabrielle Suzanne Babot, Dame de Villeneuve, released La Jeune Américaine et les Contes Marins. This is a full-length conventional novel which was influenced by 17th century novels and contains multiple sub- subplots and interconnected stories, one of which is the story of Beauty and the Beast. The Beast is a bet in that he is both physically and mentally a beast in that he looks like one and he lacks the intelligence of a human. After Villeneuve's death in 1755, Beaumont took the story, shortened it, abridged it, and published it under her own name. <sighs> and she never credited Villeneuve. I'm kind of disappointed it was a story. Yeah. It wasn't just something that like old people told yeah. the little kids for centuries and generations, and people wrote it down finally. That's the thing, is that mm, this specific that. tale type for Beauty and the Beast, which is 425C, scholars have been like, well, there's shades of Hades and Persephone, yeah, or like there's shades, shades of like the other ones, but mm-hmm. there is no direct precedent Mm. For Beauty and the Beast. Not like Cinderella. Yeah. But like somebody made Beauty and the Beast, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And it's, and since then it has turned into folktales, which is just, it's interesting to think about. Like Villeneuve, where did she, I mean, sure, it might have been like some sort of like local legend maybe, Mm -hmm. or like there's like shades of fairy lore in there, but it's just, it's such an interesting, it's an interesting case study all on its own. Maybe she was just lazy and stole it. (laughs) Hopefully not, because then her work got stolen. And anyways, well, karma—that's what gets you. May, may you have the day karma decides you have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't have enough time, unfortunately, to delve into psychology and literary theory behind everything we just talked about. But I do highly recommend a book called *Beauty and the Beast: Visions and Revisions of an Old Tale* by Betsy Hearn. If you want to dive more into this, like we just did with C- Cinderella. Um, it will prove fruitful because while nowadays Beauty and the Beast is widely regarded in the Disney version as a children's tale of love conquering all, including physical deformity, this story started out as a true moral tale against the rapacious and oftentimes violent intents of unknown men. Literally, the quote-unquote hero of the story is an animal who physically attacks the heroine multiple times. Mm. It's also often been debated as a tale of Stockholm Syndrome by modern psychologists, and taken as a warning for women in an era when violent crimes and kidnapping was on the rise. 
that is super depressing. I did not <laughs> like knowing any of that. Because, yeah, I really thought it was the, the – I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be outright Disney because Disney yeah. sanitizes everything. Yeah. But that's pretty – Yeah. So with those delightful like thoughts that. in place, <laughs> why do we love Beauty and the Beast so much? Well, I think it all comes down to the grump sunshine trope. I really do. Yeah. No, it's a big one. That's a really powerful one. There's just something so incredibly fun about a grumpy character being confronted by like a happy-go-lucky or at least a more positive character mm-hmm. and the plethora of interactions that can cause. But you know, I think there's so many grump sunshine mm. kind of things out there. I think it hinges on them being trapped together. Yeah. Like that says more to me about a Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast story than just, oh, you're grumpy and I'm sunny. Woohoo! Like they have to physically be stuck together. Like, yeah. Locked room. Kind of, yeah, some kind of relationship. Castle. Like to live together. They're like forced to marry. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Secondly, love literally transforming people. Romance readers and honestly, people in general love to romanticize the idea of love being transformative. Whether it's a physical transformation like we see in Beauty and the Beast, or if it's something a little more subtle with the grump sunshine trope. The idea of transformative love is something, again, it's really heady that I think might be one of the foundational principles of the romance genre as a whole. And I know that that's a big statement. I feel like Monster Boyfriend fans would disagree (laughs) with you, though, because they would be like, well, why did the Beast have to change it all for her? That's true. Because he was just fine with all those fangs and claws and weird bear head. Tentacles. Well, (laughs) okay. Well, that would be a different location, I think. (laughs) I just found one of those today. And I, yeah, I am ashamed to admit that I downloaded it. But anyways. Well, don't be ashamed because we're going to do a Monster Boyfriend one day. I'm so excited. One day. I don't know when. Anyways, back to Beauty and the Beast. Finally, I think that the tale of Beauty and the Beast lends itself really well to a variety of situations and many genres within romance. Where areas, Cinderella seems to really only harmonize well with either historical, like Regency, or modern rom-coms. Beauty and the Beast motifs and tropes go really well with a variety of darker situations, like mafia, bully, Mm -hmm. monster, alien... While still being able to be used in situations like Regency. There's a lot of um, historicals with heroes coming back from war, scarred and physically disabled. And they meet the heroine and her love is something that brings him back from the um, mental and emotional brink. Mm. And also a thought. Do we think Pride and Prejudice was influenced by Beauty and the Beast? Darcy? No, I don't think the timeline matches. I mean, maybe. I guess she could have sat around and read the book. But, like, if it wasn't a folklore, if it wasn't a common thing. Well, it was published 40 years before Jane Austen wrote. Yeah, but wasn't it in the wrong country? It was Europe. They were doing grand tours. Well, yeah. Regency grand tours. Didn't you say this was Germany or French? Like, why? Jane Austen was English. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they they didn't have the kind of technology we did now. I don't know how well books actually crossed borders. Very well. Right, well, I don't know. I Especially think between France and England. I'm going to still say no. Pre-Napoleon. Nope. Okay. Nope. All right. Titles. First up, A Curse So Dark and Lonely by Bridget Kammerer. Kammerer? I'm still sorry I cannot say that name. We know this by now. This is a YA fantasy that transports a physically disabled heroine into a fantasy world, and she has to save the day. We also have The Duchess Deal by Tessa Darrigan. Broding Regency hero makes a deal with a seamstress for a fake marriage. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the no kissing rule goes right out the window quickly. Yes, it does. We also have Romancing the Duke 
Again, by Tessadare. This is a Tessadare stan account. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually one of my favorite regencies. The hero lives in a dilapidated castle. He's blind, and the heroine ends up there through like a series of miscommunications and helps him reestate the castle and his life. And it's just, it's so sweet. It's also early cosplay and fandom. Is it? Well, yeah, because it, isn't that oh, the one? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the one where her dad makes the, like, the crazy popular right. stories, and he has all the fans come to the yes. castle like dressed like right. them. And, I like, forgot the about thing. that. And then there's a Lumiere character. Yeah. And, oh, my God. It's so Jeez. good. I'm going to have to reread that. I love that one. Okay. Also, Entreat Me by Grace Driven. Dark fantasy with a warlord enchanted by his hatred and a bloodthirsty rose out for blood. <laughs> and finally, we have The Beast by Katie Robert. Yes, I am... Uh, I don't know, recommending Katie Robert, no surprise. This is a very spicy threesome between Gaston, Beast, and Belle set in a contemporary BDSM club. When you say threesome, do they actually end up together or is Mm -hmm. it like an encounter? They end up together. Oh, that's so sweet. Does she teach him how to read? No. No. It is dark, though. Oh, okay, but like I just want to know Gaston isn't going to like ruin books anymore. No, Gaston is actually... So the whole premise of this series by Katie Robert, it's the wicked villains, and it's the villains get the happy ending. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to. I just want to. Literally, know, like burner books or something. Mean. No. Okay. No. No. Okay. Good job, Gaston. I <sighs> always liked you, aside from the the muddy books. <laughs> yeah. No. Don't throw books in that the mud. Mean. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's time to leave folk tales behind, and we're going to move on to one of the most beloved literary classics out there, Jane Austen's own *Pride and Prejudice*. So. Unlike our last two examples, I'm not going to be giving a breakdown of where this tale originates in regards to tale types because this book is an example of literature, not of folklore. No doubt, like I questioned before, Pride and Prejudice was probably influenced by tropes that we can relate back to folktale and ATU tale types. But it's more interesting instead to talk about the influence of Austen's Regency lifestyle and the pervasive love readers still have for this story today. So let's go down a brief path into how Pride and Prejudice first came to be a book. According to family legend, Austen began writing First Impressions, the novel we today know as Pride and Prejudice, in October 1796 at the age of 20. She completed it in August 1797 and was ready for it to be published. Her father, the Reverend George Austen, who was a great dad, wanted to help his daughter get published. So he wrote a query letter on November 1st, 1797 to London publisher Cadell and Davies. But they rejected it. They lost out, man. And I like to imagine that first impressions languished in a drawer as a stack of papers just waiting to see daylight. Jane continued to write, though, and began working on early drafts of Sense and Sensibility and Northanger Abbey. Sense and Sensibility was written between 1795 and 1797, but it wasn't published until 1811 when her brother Henry agreed to be her agent. The interesting part of this is that Sense and Sensibility was published completely anonymously, as was the rest of her work while she lived. Now, Sense and Sensibility was a runaway success, and it completely sold out within a year. Encouraged by the success of her first publication, Austin, quote-unquote, lopped and cropped and significantly revised the manuscript of First Impressions between 1811 and 1812, changing its title to Pride and Prejudice to avoid plagiarism because another book was published in 1800 called First Impressions. Austin's brother sent out a query this time instead of her brother, or instead of her father, and publisher Thomas Egerton offered Jane 110 pounds for the copyright to Jane to Pride and Prejudice. At today's rate, that would be an advance of 9,000 pounds, 466 and 87 pence, or $12,520 and 83 cents. It seems like a decent advance, right? Really? Unfortunately, Austin did not get the best end of that deal. 
In return for his advance, Egerton would pay for printing and advertising the novel himself, and he would keep the profits, Mm. relieving the author and her brother of the onus of managing the publication process, but also relieving them of the profits. In reality, Jane received only £684 from publishing four books in her lifetime. In today's money, that's $77,896.28, which is only $12,982 and some change a year for the rest of her life since she died in 1817. That is not a livable wage. So... Maybe this isn't important in the grand scheme of this topic, but I'm kind of curious now that you're talking about it, where do the profits for her work go today? So because Jane herself never got married, mm-hmm. she never had any descendants. Her brothers had descendants, but they've like it's gone out of the oh, so like, no lineage more now. Running around? Plus, well, I think they're so far descended, but mm-hmm. plus since her works are so far out of copyright, mm-hmm. anybody who publishes it gets the copyright from that. Oh. So like say Say Penguin releases an edition. Mm-hmm. They're going to get the the money from that. Okay. So the Pride and Prejudice movies, mm-hmm. the studio that released that, they get all the profit so from that. So it's really beneficial to some of these properties that they don't have to pay mm. a state. And any- okay. the museum and the house, which is the Chawton House and mm-hmm. the, um, the Jane Austen's House Museum, um, is owned by the Jane Austen Memorial Trust and has been owned since 1947. I mean, I know those stories are obviously very beloved and still popular, but I, I am kind of wondering now, my cynical side has taken <laughs> over. It's it's sounds very profitable for companies to kind of keep producing Pride and Prejudice Jane Austen works if they're if they don't have to pay any kind of estate. Mm. Yeah. Anything to an estate. And it's still so popular. Yeah. For reasons we'll get into in a minute. And I guess that explains Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> which was a great book i'm not mocking the book was, but I, I saw that concept and i was like wow i'm really surprised like the estate gave them permission and yeah. they didn't need there the is no estate <laughs> simple answer cool so pride and prejudice was announced for sale in an ad in the morning chronicle on january 28 1813 as a three-volume set priced at 18 shillings which is twenty dollars and fifty cents in today's money and because of this popularity, it quickly sold out. Sense and Sensibility was hired for a second edition, and she went on to pen her remaining novels, all anonymously. Huh. Jane died on July 18th, 1817, without ever having received named credit for her works. That's really just depressing. She only had five years of this? Yeah. Six, and five, why, six, yeah. Well, she, Four? Why was she anonymous? Was it just like... It's because how she started. Mm-hmm. And as we know from Little Women, publishing as a woman during this time okay, so was, was increasingly like, difficult. Well, that was kind of my, my thought was like, why didn't she either make up a person or was it because like the story was already so, I don't want to say it was like a feminine story, but it I think that's part of it too. It doesn't sound like something a man would write. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering if that was also the reason for, oh, I'm going to be anonymous. And Maybe it'll be we'll like an open do... secret. It's a woman that wrote it, that wrote it, but like. Maybe we'll have to do a whole Jane Austen month. Maybe. Yeah, and just talk about her. Because she know. was cool. As far I don't know as that know. much about her. I haven't I haven't read that much. I've only <laughs> read Pride and Prejudice. I'm sorry. Um, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey were published together posthumously in December 1817 with a biographical notice written by her brother Henry in which Jane was, for the first time ever in one of her novels, identified as the author of Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Persuasion, and Northanger Abbey. So, like, it was safe for her to use her name when she was dead? Mm. 
That was that, or was it the brother being like sentimental? I think it was the brother being sentimental. Okay. I really think it was that she didn't want to publish, and of course, we can't ascribe this. This is just us thinking, and a, a couple other scholars have said the same thing, that she didn't want to publish under her name because she was kind of like, she was gentry, mm-hmm. and it was almost seen as not ladylike to be writing during this time. Also, like we were just talking about with the fact of being a woman publishing at this time, it wasn't it wasn't really heard of. I mean, Mary Shelley wouldn't publish Frankenstein until like what, 40 years later, something mm-hmm. like that. So it just wasn't, it wasn't done. Okay. I think was the answer. Mm-hmm. And I really think her brother was like, it's time. Mm-hmm. So, and I got a little teary reading that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So why does Pride and Prejudice remain so popular today, especially when it comes to romance books? And I asked a bunch of people, cause a lot of my friends are, fans of Pride and Prejudice and a lot of them agreed on some of these reasons and what a lot of it boiled down to was that Pride and Prejudice is a story of two flawed characters that just feel incredibly real and they're just incredibly relatable in every single version that is told or almost every single version that is told I'm thinking of the Colin Firth white shirt moment at the moment Um, and the title is literally about a prideful character and a prejudiced character and they come together for a happily ever after at the end Secondly, misunderstandings. There's something, again, completely real about bad first impressions and misunderstanding one another, even when you're being attracted to someone and you overcome those misunderstandings together. Thirdly, we love a good enemies to lovers. While there's no dagger to the throat, at least not in the original version, this is an excellent example of one of romance's most beloved tropes. We love to see the journey from loathe to love, and Darcy and Lizzie embody this wholeheartedly thanks to these mutual misunderstandings and their wonderfully written character flaws. It's also really lovely lovely to see the hero pining away in the corner and that he has to like grovel for Lizzie's affections. We do like a grovel. We love a good grovel. Mm-hmm. There are also character archetypes that we know and love, even if some of them do feel more like caricatures. We have the brooding hero. Everyone wants to try and fix, but he ends up falling in love and changing himself for the heroine who helps him grow. We also have the outsider heroine. Lizzie really hates society. Um, She hates the trappings and the conventions and really just doesn't see the point of it. And she is fundamentally flawed on her own, but she recognizes this and she also grows through it. Plus, she's a reader. We love a book about a reader. Um, There's also, again, the relatability of characters. Besides them being flawed, the whole Charlotte, I'm 27, I have no money and no prospects. And I learned today that this is a movie quote and not a book quote. But you know what? It is still so relatable. And Charlotte, I think, is just, I love Charlotte. And again, there's really no shining golden singular character throughout the entire story they are really all flawed. Even Jane, who's a bit of a paragon, is a walking older child Mm -hmm. metaphor. And let's not forget the Darcy hand flex, which is still capable of inducing a swoon from 20 paces. We love a good hand flex. And yes, I know, again, this is the movie, but yeah. we're correlating the movie and the book together okay. at this point, okay? Somehow, this story, it's hilarious. I don't know if Austin meant it to be that dry British humor that just cracks me up, but it's a cast of characters just going through life and they're making mistakes and they're bumbling and the mom's getting drunk and embarrassing the sisters and the dad's just off like, I don't know what to do with this. And there's these really great one-liners that just stick with you, whether it's from the movie, whether it's from the books, whether it's from any of the other adaptations. And finally, timelessness. And I think that this is a novel 
to sum it all up, about a family just trying to get by in a world through their series of mishaps. It's about a man and a woman who, despite what they perceive to be irreconcilable differences, grow throughout the story and through their interactions with each other, and somehow end up falling in love despite their different circumstances. Even with the 200-year difference, that storyline still rings true today. So when you say things like flawed characters, Mm. I feel like I'm starting to think over and over again about flawed characters and when people are like, oh, I love flawed characters so much, it's still an acceptable kind of flaw. Mm, true, Because true. The, only re- the only people that got redeemed were people were, that were just like, I don't know, a little judgmental, a little mm. too insensitive. It wasn't like they ever redeemed the the, the Wickshaw. Was that how you pronounce Wickham. that guy? Yeah, it's not, they never redeemed Wickham. That's true. You know, I think it's still a little like iffy on the flawed thing. But what I was thinking as you were talking, this was still the same period where most of their stories still had like the moral background. Right. And where like the characters were super perfect and super godly or, you know, they were supposed to impart some kind of a lesson because this feels like it's an was like a a nice uh, palate cleanser to that kind of thing going on at the time. I don't. I don't know that I entirely agree with that. Well, that's why I was asking. Well, because I'm 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 bad at time. So because the character of Mr. William Collins is one of the other ones that's a caricature. Yeah. And he is like the only overtly religious character. No, no, no. I'm not saying. But I mean, like, it feels like if I'm thinking of publishing at the right time period, a lot of the stories coming out were supposed to be like these moralistic teaching you a lesson kind of a Mm. thing. And Pride and Prejudice does not have that same kind of sentiment. Like you said, it's more like flawed characters. They're like struggling. They're learning. They're growing. It's not this overt, like, be a good Christian, obedient woman and you'll be fine in life. Yeah. You know, like you like you just said, that guy was a, like a, making fun of those characters. Yeah. So I was wondering if that was part of the reason for why this was so. Oh, I get it. I like, see what you're out, saying. Yeah. Okay. Standing yeah. out in the crowd. Like, yes. Especially because you kept using like flawed over and over again as Sorry. a good thing. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying it was bad to say that, but I'm like, oh, so like, was that a contrast to the kinds of publishing trends that were at that time that we had talked about in history of romance of being very like, this is how to be a good citizen and Christian woman. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, yes. I very do like not mean black and white kind of writing. Yeah. I don't mean flawed. Like we think of with like mafia romances yeah. today, because like you said, Wickham, he's the only character who isn't really redeemed and he's mm-hmm. definitely the villain. Yeah, of the like story. He just sucks the whole time. Yeah. He has to marry Kitty. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> That's a punishment in and of itself. She seemed annoying. Yeah. And he seemed awful. So, yes. like, yeah. it wasn't like they learned a lesson the way Elizabeth or Darcy did. Right. They true. just are going to go mean, off and make each other miserable now. They got their comeuppance. Yeah, that's true. They're stuck with each other. Yeah. <laughs> stuck in the middle with mm-hmm. you. Okay. All right. Well, it's time for recommendations. Are we ready? Go for it. Speed round number three. First up, The Soulmate Equation by Christina Lauren. This is one of those books that's not an outright retelling, but it's full of fun Easter eggs. And once you realize it, they just, they keep popping up. Um, We have a single mom who sends out her spit, like 23andMe, to a matchmaking company. They promise to find you the perfect genetic match. There's a lot of science. Darcy is reimagined as like a grumpy Adam Driver-esque scientist who gets overheard calling the heroine, quote unquote, perfectly average. And there's a blood-drawing phlebotomy scene that goes... It was right back to the hand flex moment we all know and love. Cool. There's also Aisha at Last by Yuzman Juliadu. I'm so sorry. I have no idea. I have I'm no sorry. Idea. I know the book was super popular <laughs> and it's super pretty. It's got a it purple is. headscarf and on it's like gilded. A gold. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So the characters are Muslim and arranged marriages thicken the plot. This is a rare book that deftly balances a fun and lighthearted romance with more serious undertones about equality, sex, custom, race, and religion. 
We have Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dev. And this is the first in a series that reimagines all of Austin's work. This is about um, San Francisco's most brilliant neurosurgeon trying to appease her traditional Indian family and falling for a prideful up-and-coming chef. What about Pride by E.B. Isaboyd, which is a contemporary YA set in a Brooklyn neighborhood that pits classism and gentrification against first love and character growth. We have Pride and Premeditation by Tirza Price. This is a Regency-era mystery. If you liked Enola Holmes, you will probably like this. Lizzie is an aspiring lawyer, and Dossie is heir to a law firm. And together, they need to solve the mystery and free the wrongfully convicted convict. And don't forget about Unmarriageable by Sonia Kamal. This fun, lavish retelling takes place in modern-day Pakistan during a huge wedding bash in which the Bintail family has a chance to overcome their poor fortune and worse reputation and rub elbows with eligible men. So, hoo-hoo. Oh, yes. I'm very sorry I can't pronounce anything. <laughs> Same, guys. I'm so sorry. And finally, we have The Bennett Women by Eden Apia Kubi. This is less of a romance and more of a women's fiction as the story revolves around the relationships of the women and less so about the romance between um, main characters EJ and her love interest Will. It's kind of like Little Women and Pride and Prejudice put together. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a deep breather. This is this is a long episode. I'm so sorry. We've gotten to the last one and one that I definitely went down the rabbit hole for. Hades and Persephone. Now the myth. A reminder, a myth is separated from a folktale in that it is a traditional story explaining a historical or religious phenomenon. The myth of Hades and Persephone is used to help describe the changing of the seasons, but is also, fun classicist fact, used to describe something known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. So if you aren't familiar with the myth, I'm not going to go into the big whole long spiel. Click the link, read it. There's some really interesting things, but the very interesting thing about the myth of Hades from Persephone it's not about Hades and Persephone. No. It's about Persephone's mother, Demeter. Yep. And because of Persephone's abduction as sanctioned by Zeus, because Zeus is a Zeus raging sucks. butthead, um, Demeter goes into a depression so deep that causes winter. It actually causes a famine that is only relieved when Zeus sends Hermes mm-hmm. to be like, hey, give Persephone back to her mom. And Persephone then basically a deal is made where she goes up for it's either six months or eight months, something like that. Spring comes back. Demeter's happy. But then Persephone has to go back to Hades um, and Demeter gets sad again. So the history of this myth is also really interesting. And honestly, it's really widely looked into when it comes to classical studies. And there's so many different avenues we could go down. But I really encourage you to go watch a YouTube video by Overly Sarcastic Productions called Miscellaneous Myths, Hades and Persephone. Because the creator does an amazing job of analyzing the myth, its origins, its meanings, and the possibility that Persephone is an ancient death goddess that predates Hades. And in fact, predates a majority of the Greek pantheon. But for now, I'll go into the history of the myth as related to the Eleusinian mysteries as quickly as possible because I know Jen is going to roll her eyes at me here in a minute. I'm not rolling. <laughs> She's going, oh my God, Jackie, shut up. <laughs> so the first instance we have of the Hades Persephone myth is told through the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. Again, it's all about Demeter. And then again, much later, it's told in the canonical version by the Roman poet Ovid in the first century CE and the Metamorphoses called, content warning here, the rape of Prosepina. I can never say that. It's it's the Roman version of Persephone. Don't let the name fool you. 
Um, the Homeric hymn to Demir was not written by the infamous Homer who lived around the 9th century BCE. Instead, it was most likely penned by a group of scribes called the Homeridae, a historical clan on the Aegean island of Chios, whose members claimed to be descendants of Homer and wrote in a style that was meant to evoke him. Most likely, the hymn itself was written between 650 and 550 BCE. What's super interesting is that the original story, again, like I said, it doesn't tell the mythos for Persephone. It's an etiological accounting of the seasons in regard to Demeter. That's why Demeter and her own actions take center stage around her daughter's abduction and disappearance. Furthermore, the myth itself most likely was penned for the Eleusinian Mysteries. This, we don't really know a lot about the name. It's a mystery, guys. That's why it's called the Mysteries. <laughs> but as far as we know, it was an ancient cult as well as an ancient festival in Eleusis, Eleusis, a place in Greece that honored the story of Demeter and the journey of Persephone into the underworld. Again, go watch that YouTube video because they sh that creator does an amazing job of talking about it. There's also a lot of academic journals if you are a super nerd like me and to love to read the dry academia stuff. And I've linked the ones I read in the show notes for you to go peruse. Before we move into the implications of retelling and romanticizing this myth, though, Jen, do you have any questions or nuggets of wisdom you wish to impart? I mean, not really. Okay. I was because I I had been thinking this entire time. I really hope she says something about how it's about the mom. Yeah, <laughs> and how yeah, it's really about the the trauma of the family being ripped apart. Yeah, especially back in those days where once you got married, if you if you were too far away, like that was it. You were not going to see your family again. So I'm really glad you said that because I was I had a whole thing in my head and okay, I don't good. have to say it now. Yeah, so. there we go. Yeah, no, it's all <laughs> but, about Demeter. But now I'm kind of like. It's interesting that it's been so shifted that the focus is on Hades and Persephone and like this love story, this abduction. This like things about consent and power and yada yada, mm -hmm. as opposed to the trauma and honestly, yeah, the violence of her being ripped from her mother. Yeah, she's still faint, like she's still youngish yeah. when it happens. It's not yeah. like, like they age her up, obviously, in retellings today. And I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's more fun, first of all, to talk about Hades and Persephone over <laughs> Demeter. Sorry, one, Demeter. It's just super depressing. We're in the middle of winter now. It's we depressing. want Demeter back. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's interesting how we've. Uh, taken the focus off of where it originally was yeah mm -hmm. uh which leads us perfectly into the next section in which heads up this is where we're going to be talking very heavily about the implications of the adoption abduction and possible rape um i put the timestamps in the show notes for you to skip over in case you don't want to listen to but, this but discussion you know, i will say i have read the they use rape a lot in these stories and it isn't always necessarily sexual assault yes. rape was also just like abduction a euphemism too. yeah like, yeah because they also had like the rape of Europhea, they had like the rape of Helen of Troy, like it was just kind of a common way to be like, hey, this lady's about to get kidnapped. So the word rape itself is from Latin rapere, which means to seize, to mm. carry off by force yeah. or to abduct. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't used in its sense that we think of today until the 15th century in mm -hmm. English, um, even possibly later than mm -hmm. that. But yeah, so when we use the translation, the rape of Proserpina, the rape of Persephone, it's not in referring to the physical sexual violence necessarily. It's referring to the abduction. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of bad takes online that are like, Katie's raped Persephone. It's bad. Why are you loving this story? Yada, yada. First of all, these were not real people. Mm -hmm. Calm down. <laughs> Or like it's they? a myth. No, it's not. There's they, no such they thing. They hang out with Sasquatch no. now. Oh my god! <laughs> no, there's no Sasquatch. There's no gods. It's fine. Real people were not harmed here. But the other Correct. thing is like, yeah, the language has evolved. This, who knows? I mean, I'm sure there's versions where yeah, Hades did sexually assault his wife. 
I have not actually read any of those versions myself, but maybe at a time and then you like would read between the lines. What? So what's really interesting, mm. we don't have the full Eleusinian myth. Oh, okay. It is in literal fragments. So, see, he could have been a gentleman and waited. We are missing like an entire portion mm. of Persephone in mm. the underworld oh. where it could have talked about. Because all we know... Like, after it talks about Demeter going to Eleusis, yeah. where she establishes her cult or mm -hmm. whatever, is that it jumps from that to suddenly being like, and Persephone loved Hades, but her mother missed yeah. her so much. See, and so, yeah, he, she loved him. I mean, f when you read about all the other gods, honestly, Hades was the best one. Like, he wasn't as terrible as some of the others. So, yes, we've got the trigger warning there, but it's, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not too bad. I think... We're going to talk about how, in the modern lens, things get really distorted. Yeah. Um, but in retellings land, even outside of Romance Landia, there's been a lot of new takes on Greeks and Roman myths. Yeah. And in case you weren't aware, the original myths aren't always kind to women. One word for you is Zeus. I'm just going <sighs> to leave that there. Yeah. Zeus is his own trigger warning. And in case you couldn't tell, there's been a lot of discourse in spheres and literature and romance and classicism and classics and all that sort of stuff about the morality of retelling these myths into spaces like romance because of the implications that come with romanticizing narratives that were traumatic to women in any way, shape, of, or form. Whether it be the sexual violence that Zeus and Apollo are known for or abduction or anything like that, there's been a lot of people who stand up and be like... No, we cannot retell <laughs> these because we are oh glorifying God. and romanticizing traumatic things. Please, and listen, please go get a hobby. Yes. <laughs> Maybe take a break from reading. There, are, there is a difference, I think, between romanticizing these myths that mm. have been passed down for centuries yeah. versus romanticizing modern-day sexual assault. They yeah. are completely different. Mm -hmm. It is a chicken and a potato, okay? There's certain places for certain things, and yes. I think with a lot of the Greek myths, like Jackie's been talking about with folklore in this entire podcast, there's a lot of stuff underneath the surface. Like, it's not really just about or Hades stealing Persephone. It's got all these other kind of connotations of, hey, this is also about mothers losing their daughters. This is also about yada, 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 so on and so forth. It, calm down. <laughs> Please calm down. It's okay. You're going to get through this. And in case you can't tell, Jen and I are on the side of using these retellings, yeah. especially to give these women mm -hmm. agency in these stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, retell it, please. Yes. And it's not unique to Hades and Persephone. No. A lot of modern fiction authors and even scholars are ascribing this agency in a way that is wholly feminist mm -hmm. and visible only really through a modern lens. Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about fan fiction or instances with authors like Katie Robert who create new romance plots with different ships or things like that. For instance, look at the book Circe by Madeline Miller. If you have not read that book, it is of my opinion that every woman or female identifying person should read that book. Circe is typically vilified in the Odyssey as the witch who kept Odysseus prisoner and turns his men into pigs. Which, fair enough. I want to do that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. metaphor right there, guys. <laughs> but in Miller's book, the villain is made into a woman whose backstory creates a narrative about someone who has been abandoned, sexually abused, imprisoned, and gaslit her entire life. And you can rest assured that that take on Circe's myth was written nowhere in the Odyssey or anywhere else that Circe traditionally pops up. Well, again, thinking about how some people are claiming, like, oh, it's not feminist to, to use these specific mm. tales. I want to point out a lot of the translations of these tales were done by men. Yes. And now that we are having more women in academia, more women with these kind of backgrounds, they are looking at these stories and retelling them. Going back to Odysseus, like Jackie said, mm -hmm. there is a new version out with a female academic who 
really altered some aspects of the story by in- reinterpreting what the original story was. Yes. And our as understanding a woman. of it as a woman, as so like, I remember she made changes of just like to the description of Penelope yes. because male scholars had made her very like slender oh, and pretty and cute. Penelope. But no. she's sewing every day for decades. So like, no, her hands are not these cute little slender things. They're like thick. They're rough. Uh, other times the male scholars had avoided saying slaves. She said slaves. Yes. So there's like these little details that on the surface, no, the plot didn't change that much, but I think it lends to a different understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to just throw away the entire Greek mythology as like, oh, it's all bad. You also have to remember how it's been interpreted. Exactly. And how it's been told to us for years. And that's in a whole with all of these things we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing my research for Cinderella, I was reading a compilation of journals, and one of them specifically talked about the transmission and the translation of Mm. Cinderella and how each translator looks at it with a different lens, whether it be man, woman, whatever era they live Mm -hmm. in, they are going to look at certain things a different way. So like Jen was saying with Hades and Persephone, Persephone has been viewed as being abducted because she was young. She was Mm -hmm. a girl. She was in a field picking flowers and here comes this, big scary man to snatch her up and take her away to this place that is hell mm-hmm. in and this goes into my next point perfectly okay I'm really excited I got that um so as Americans especially as modern Americans reading these stories like Hades and Persephone we are internally colored against these types of stories Mm -hmm. we live in a society that was founded on fundamentally christian values whether you are christian or not we live in a christian society and frequently our culture still seeks to sanitize ancient peoples ancient cultures in terms of how we perceive and conceptualize these ancient myths and especially how we conceptualize hades god of the underworld if he is to be perceived in Christian values, then he is Satan. And so he is categorically evil. Anything he does or is a part of is tainted. He takes a beautiful, pure maiden from a field, right? Takes her to the underworld. She is tainted. She is no longer a good Christian woman, mm-hmm. right? I know that's conflating Christianity and Greek no, mythos okay, together. It. You get what I'm saying. Yeah. Look at Disney's Hercules, right? Plucking that pin out from our very beginning of the conversation. <laughs> Hades is a villain with a beaky nose who tries to cause the downfall of Zeus. Guys, it's not anywhere in the original Greek mythos. If anything, Zeus should be the true villain of that mm-hmm. story. But he is too much of a god figure to make evil in Disney speak. I feel like, too, they need to keep like good parents. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where Hera herself is highly problematic, but it's she's mostly problematic because Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> Zeus the douche. Yeah, she doesn't try to kill people. It's just she's so mad about it. Exactly. Dude, can you blame her? No. So instead, Disney chose the god of the dead, the god of the underworld, Mm -hmm. Hades as Satan, to be the villain. Yeah. So, all right, fair enough. I get your point from the beginning. I still say it's a good movie, yeah. and you, it is still good. You cannot tell the, the story. Do do you cannot do, do, do. tell Hercules in its original form to <laughs> no. children? No. So I get that they had to like make some decisions, but I see your point of like, oh hey, they didn't have to make Hades, God of the Dead, right. the villain. Right. You had the Titans already. They are plenty yeah. They of were villains. fine. <laughs> you had Zeus. Yeah, you <laughs> had Zeus. You could have made this like a big thing. Anyways, mm-hmm. anyways, big long rambly bit aside to the arguments that say it's dangerous to romanticize a story that was originally in the Roman version. And the Romans are such great people, right? Mm-hmm. It was originally called The Rape. This is a story 
that Jen, like Jen said, was told by a man, mm-hmm. or at least has been continuously recounted by men. In the original myth itself, like we keep saying, it wasn't even focused on Hades and Persephone. It was about Demeter and how her actions caused a shift in seasons. Mm-hmm. It was used to describe how a cult did things. It was used to describe ritual. Mm-hmm. Persephone's descent into the underworld and subsequent retellings of her time there, there's, there's little difference between them and Beauty and the Beast in reality. The original mythos tells us nothing about Persephone's time in the underworld. And we really we can't speak of it so there's no reason really in my mind that we shouldn't be so up in arms against romanticizing it yeah okay and i feel like too i've read think pieces where they're like you know it could have been very willing for her yes because like you said that's the most common thing now exactly like there's a lot of other translations you can make where it was like no she wanted to go and be a married woman she wanted to get away from her like she wanted her life to start yeah and like she really liked hades and who knows, maybe she did take that step onto the, the chariot and went down herself, and Dimitri just, like, freaked out. Do you want to hear one of my favorite factoids? Yes. There is a theory that Persephone was actually an ancient goddess oh, yeah, of the you dead. Oh, yeah. And this is especially that mm, YouTube that. video goes into it. Mm-hmm. But there is this theory that Persephone, as she existed before the Hades and Persephone myth, before Eleusis, before Greece, um, even before the Minoan culture, which mm-hmm. is like one of the oldest cultures we can talk about, she was so feared, she was unnamed. She was the unnamed mm-hmm. goddess of the dead. There is a really good quote from the YouTube video, but you know what's scarier than the god of the underworld and the supreme ruler of the dead? What? His, His wife? wife. Hey! Yes. <laughs> yes. Also, there's this is from the comments of that YouTube mm-hmm. video, and there was some really interest, interesting discussions in there. One of my favorites was there's this talk of Hades not existing prior to Homer, yeah. and it was almost kind of like wondering if Persephone marrying Hades started as a pun in which she was married to <laughs> Hades funny. in the same metaphor, metaphorical way someone is married to their job. <laughs> so we have a god named Hades come up, ties the knot with her, meaning like as a twist on, yeah, That's Persephone was so married to her story. job. Oh my God. I, right? love it. I love it. I love it so much. I, I just do. Okay. But two so. points. I do love that they had to water this terrifying goddess of death down to yes. the scared little girl. So <laughs> before she's Persephone, like, her hilarious. name is Kore, which yeah. literally le- means maiden. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, too, this isn't the only time we see Persephone in the myths. Like, she pops up in yeah. other stories, and she's got some power. She's got some happiness. Like, this little snapshot is not her full experience forever with Hades. And what's really interesting is if you look at the pottery and like physical yeah. descriptions of Hades and Persephone, Persephone is almost always per- yeah. portrayed at the forefront mm-hmm. of Hades, mm-hmm. which in Greek typography, that yeah. is like having precedence over somebody. Everything I've read is like Hades really loves his wife. Mm-hmm. He's like just like a nice, boring dude with a cool dog. Yes. Who's obsessed with his wife. And like, he's got some cool friends. Yeah. He does his job really seriously and really well. Yes. He's like, if you're going to marry anybody, yeah, you want to go for Hades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also completely ship Adam Driver as Hades in a live action no. remake. No. It's got to be hotter. <sighs> I think Adam Driver is no. very hot. <laughs> Ever since I read the love hypothesis, it just like uh, it well, yeah, clicked. Oh yeah, it was Relo. <laughs> yeah, Relo. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, all right. 
So let's just move past theory. Okay, we're still going to talk about theory, but let's move <laughs> past like the whole romanticizing theory. Let's talk about why we love Hades and Persephone retellings, except for the fact that Persephone is a total badass. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're a quarter. Ah! <laughs> you have it. Oh, we got uh... her, guys. So all of this big theory stuff aside, let's get back into romance. Let's talk about why we love Hades and Persephone retellings in Romance Landia so much. And I think it has to do with a lot of the reasons that we love Beauty and the Beast retellings. Mm -hmm. Because like I said before, we could really argue that Beauty and the Beast is in some way inspired by Hades and Persephone. So first and foremost, I think opposites attract plays into a large part of why we love Hades and Persephone. Mm -hmm. Hades is the god of death. Persephone is the goddess of life in some forms. And it's really the embodiment of like yin to yang, dark to light, death to life. And it's just like, it's magnetic, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So secondly, authors have been extremely successful in applying these characters to modern character archetypes. Now, not only have they been able to create modern versions of Olympus similar to like a Gotham or a New York type setting, but they've also been really successful in applying new character archetypes to the characters themselves. For instance, Demeter turns very often into an overbearing mother in a lot of different retellings. Hades gets retold as the misunderstood hero, just like in Beast and Beauty and the Beast. And Hades and Persephone become the star-crossed lovers who just want to be together, but outside forces are really trying to keep them separate, and they just fight to be together at any cost. And finally, as I said before, there's something just really tantalizing about writers creating agency for these mythical beings who had none in the original myths, who were chased, they were turned into trees, they were turned into cows, They were blinded, they went crazy, they were hunted down, just so many things these poor mythological women and men went through at the hands of their gods who were just trying to really get in their pants. Modern writers have taken this and they've started giving agency to these characters and especially these women like we just talked about. They've given them fleshed out character arcs, personalities beyond their beauty or their singing voices. And there's been an inclusion of women's sexuality and desires that goes beyond their male counterparts. I guess if I was going to be more specific, I would say that Persephone characters also are about finding their own power. True. Yeah. And, def- and finding their own lives and taking a, like a big step forward in their lives. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of that. Are we ready for some retelling recommendations? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about some of these before. We've got Neon Gods by Katie Roberts. Just go with it. I've talked about it so many times. Touch of Darkness by Scarlet St. Clair. Talked about it last time. Like I said, Fifty Shades. Mm-hmm. If you like that, you'll probably like that. Lore Olympus by Rachel Smythe. Uh, volume 1 is physically in the library. Volume Ooh. 2 comes out soon. That's exciting. And it's all available on Webtoons. Mm-hmm. But on to ones that I haven't talked about 50,000 times. We have A Court of Mist and Fury. No, no you've, you've talked about that one 50,000 times. You've talked about that probably 50,001 times. I love this series, okay? By Sarah J. Moss. But you have to read A Court of Thorns and Roses first. Oh, absolutely. You can't jump around in this series, mm-hmm. okay? Just just get through Akatar, which is the first, and get on mm-hmm. to A Court of Mist and Fury. Chapter 55 will redeem you for life. And okay. we've also got Promises and Pomegranates by Sav R. Miller, which is a dark contemporary mafia that has all the content warnings. So many content warnings. <laughs> yeah. If you liked Diesel in Den of Vipers, this Ooh, is the book for you. <laughs> you yeah. <should> <laughs> all right. 
We also have Core by Ambrosia R. Harris, which is a retelling set in classical era Greece, and Persephone chooses to run away. Pestilence by Lauren Thielasa. This one is interesting. It's technically more of a retelling of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, but it's impossible not to draw similarities between the myth of the Four Horsemen and that of Hades. And also, again, content warning. Basically, if it's a Hades and Persephone, it's a... Strong chance you're going to need a content warning. Combined with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, I would yeah. think so. All right. Yeah, you're not going to get a fluffy rom-com out of that. All right. So then we have The Power of Hades by Eliza Rain. This one's on Kindle Unlimited, but it's fun because Persephone is competing to become the queen of the underworld after Zeus abducts her from a modern Manhattan. Oh, cool. Yeah. It Ain't Me, Babe by Telly Cole, which is a MC romance. Yeah. We, oh, Motorcycle Club for people not yeah. in the know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it was probably one of the first dark romances that I actually read. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's good, though. Um, then we have Deal with the Elf King by Lisa Kova. This is Hades and Persephone, but make it fey. From Blood and Ash series and book by Jennifer Lynn Armentrout. Armentrout, I think. Armentrout. Okay, whatever. Vampires and werewolves in a high fantasy world. Yes. And I, yeah, it's it's a little unexpected, mm. that one, so go with it. Um, and then we have another webtoon version, which is Punderworld by Linda Sejic. Sejic. I am sorry. Um, it's just, it's really cute. So mm. if you like Lore Olympus, this is another webtoon series for you. Oh my gosh, and guys, I almost forgot. I lived up to my promise. Oh god. I found an Omegaverse retelling. <laughs> I found two. I dug for wow. you, okay? It, it's no surprise that it's a Red Riding Hood retelling as book sense. number 1 because you know wolves. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't want to think about why it makes sense, but it makes sense. <laughs> it's called Bleeding Red by DE Chapman and there is a second in the series called Sullied Oof. Cinders. It's hmm. dark. Yes. I feel like if you have sullied in the title, it's like that's going to need some content for Yes. Yeah. Um, those aren't on KU, but they are available for purchase as paperback from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just like a limited release. Either way, go check them out. Put them as to read on Goodreads. Um, and that does bring us to an end of our discussion as a whole. But we have mm-hmm. honorable mentions. Oh, we do? Yeah. Okay. Because obviously there's a lot of good retellings out there that we didn't have time to talk about. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so... I really love the Plated Prisoner series by Raven Kennedy, which starts mm-hmm. out as a King Midas retelling, but don't judge it by book one because Midas is not endgame. Okay? Oh, good. Just, All just right. Go Whew, with it. Because that would be a bad yeah. hero. Oh, he gets made into such a bad villain okay. in such a perfect way. Mm-hmm. Um, book four of that comes out soon, so the series will be completed by this summer, I believe. Cool. There's also Daughter of the Moon Goddess, which is a new release and a debut by Su Lin Tan. And it is a retelling of Chang A, the goddess of the moon and her daughter. And it's there's really there's a good twist mm. in that. There's also a spindle splintered by Alex Harrow, which is a hilarious queer retelling of Sleeping Beauty set in a multiverse. Ooh. And it's really short, like really short. Mm-hmm. And I have I have just so many more. Like so many. You yes. should. It sounds like you guys should just email Jackie yes. at ragingromantics at noble dot org mm-hmm. if you would like some personalized suggestions yes. from Jackie herself. And if you want any more Greek retellings, I will just do an overview. Recommend anything by Jennifer L. Saint or Pat Barker. And with that being said, guys, we made it through our longest episode yet. I believe they'll be talking about this forever. Exactly. What our podcast will be the stuff of retellings in the future. I was just trying to come up with a plot bunny for that. No, there's none. 
Darcy. It's too good. Where there, are you? <laughs> there doesn't need to be a plot bunny. All right. And Jen, what are we talking about next month? So we have got a awesome intern at Noble Woo! at the moment who loves romance and who loves podcasts. So I'm like, hey, I'll give you a fun thing to do that is not, <laughs> that is not some well, of the Well, then you say it like doing. that. <laughs> this is a fun thing to do. It is. It is. Her name is Maddie, and we will be talking about YA romance next month. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have a special guest. She's going to uh, take a swing at this, and it's going to be awesome because she's fun. Yes. And really intelligent and informative, and I think it'll be a good episode to check out. And it is probably the only way I ever would have done YA romance. <laughs> That's true. I've been trying to get her to do it from the start, well, everybody. Wait, look, book club doesn't want YA. That's so true. I'm like, you know, we got to play to our audience a little bit. Yeah. 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 But... With all that being said, thank you as always to Nopal for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. We love each and every single one of you. Um, keep an eye out for a giveaway coming soon. And Ooh. don't forget our first retellings episode. Go see how many times Jen and I say retellings. And too many times. We will announce the winner of the kudos on the first uh, YA episode. So okay. mm-hmm. with that being said, Jen... What do we always tell our people? Rage on! Bye, guys. Bye.